Hello and welcome to another edition of Fascinating Nouns. Now as of this recording, we are still the galaxy's most trusted source for incredible people, places, things, and ideas. Every week we arrive at this curious nexus point. We come here to explore the strange, the unusual, the offbeat, the bizarre, intriguing, interesting, invigorating, quirky, quaint, quizzical, weird, wild, wacky, the fun, the frivolous, and the fringe, plus all the spaces in between. I am your host, Daniel J. Glenn. Well, this is my favorite time of the year, and I've planned a two-part episode this year covering the strange, crazy, weird fiction of H.P. Lovecraft. It's hard to really put him into a into a category. I mean, he's most of his stories are horrifying, and they take place, some of them are about outer space, some of them are about weird science, so horror, sci-fi, weird fiction, hard to place him. But we talked about all that last week with the world's foremost expert on H.P. Lovecraft, Mr. S.T. Joshi. So you should have, if you've never heard about this man before, you should have a very solid foundation of his type of stories that he did and the kind of author that he was and the type of world that he created. Now that last part is going to be very important because what we are going to explore today is two guys, Sean Branny and Andrew Lehman. They run a little group called the H.P. Lovecraft Historical Society. Their mission is to bring the world of H.P. Lovecraft to life through all kinds of artistic medium, be it movies, uh, radio shows. And by radio shows, I mean radio dramas. The, the other thing you have to remember is that a lot of this stuff takes place in the 20s and 30s. So what they do is they set their things in the 20s and 30s, what was popular at the time. So radio dramas were really popular. They've got a little group called Dark Adventure Radio Theater. And they put on, they reenact a lot of H.P. Lovecraft stories, just like you would hear on the radio in the 20s and the 30s. They have movies, they have props, miniatures, cups, jackets, all kinds of things, high end, low end. They do everything here. It's an amazing little place. And we're going to get to this. We're going to get right into it uh, in just a second. I want to do a little bit of self promotion. So if you like the show, you want to know when it happens, you want to have things, you want to have this show just delivered right to, you, to your inbox. Hop on the website, fascinatingnouns.com. Sign up for the newsletter. Every week I send out a little thing, a little bit. There's some extras. Some, you find out what the future holds for the show. If you really want to be updated on the show, that is the place to go. You can also find me on Twitter, at Daniel J. Glenn. You can also go on to Facebook, after slash fascinating nouns. After slash. Just made up that, just coined that term right now. The after slash. Go Facebook.com backslash. Fascinating nouns. Now, Pinterest, this episode is going to have a lot of really amazing photographs. You're going to want to check all of them out. So it's Pinterest.com backslash fascinating noun. Don't know why there's not an S. So enough jabbering. I am sitting here with Andrew Lehman and Sean Branny. That's, That's us. us. Boom. <laughs> um, In harmony. So, Sean, say hello so people can get your voice. Hi, I'm Sean. Hi, I'm Andrew. There we go. Um, so I'm sitting here in what I assume is the satellite college campus of Miskatonic University. Is that correct? Well, it might, might be their 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 secret uh, R and D lab. Yeah, <laughs> something like <laughs> that. Something they don't want anyone to know about. That's for sure. Yeah. You guys are kind of like the the extracurricular group because uh, what the H.P. Lovecraft Historical Society. That's your group, that's right? Us. Have what? been since 1984. Or thereabouts. Yeah. No kidding. Yeah. And so, what do you guys do? What's the? I know it's a lot, a big umbrella. So, what do you guys do? What are the, some of the things you guys do? I think uh, these days, anyway, we sort of define the organization as as we're uh, producers of Lovecraftian entertainments, 
And so uh, we do a lot of audio projects, we make motion pictures, uh, we make various props and other uh, types of products that Lovecraft fans enjoy, like you know, t-shirts and mugs and, and things like that. So We got our start way back when doing a role-playing game. There's a, mm -hmm. there's a classic role-playing game called Call of Cthulhu that's based on the works of H.P. Lovecraft. And Sean and Daryl Touchton, a friend of ours, and I and a bunch of our gang back in high school got together to play this game. And we were all theater kids, or a lot of us anyway were theater kids at the time, and we thought it would be even more fun to play this game uh, acted out, let's do it live action. We had never, at the time in the mid-80s, we had never heard of live action role playing, so we thought we invented it, but of course we didn't. There were a lot of people, <laughs> there were yeah. a lot of people doing live action role playing all around the world, we just had never heard of them. But we developed our own style of live action role playing of Lovecraftian stories, and uh, as we got more and more ambitious with our games. It sort of turned into, this is as much work as making a movie. We really ought to bring a camera along. And it sort of all <laughs> snowballed and grew out of there. So uh, combining Lovecraftian role playing with a bunch of uh, theater producer type people, it all sort of organically mushroomed into the great big organization that it is now. Wow. I do want to give my audience at home, I did not give you guys a nerd alert, so I do apologize for it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> I, uh, I actually, the first place I heard, and I'm going to say Cthulhu because I just talked to a guy who told me that's the proper pronunciation. I've been saying Cthulhu for 20 years. Who mm, knew? Yeah. Um, but maybe, you know, I'm going to say Cthulhu because I want to be with, just like everyone else. I don't want to be uh, yeah. a, you don't a bourgeois. Get yeah, <laughs> just, really, if, if you don't have a beak, yeah, there is no. <laughs> you're going to have a funny accent, and you're not saying it right. There so. is no proper pronunciation. The proper pronunciation yeah. is not to say it at all. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny because the whole H.P. Lovecraft thing. I heard about it from the that role playing game, Call of Cthulhu. Yeah. that's oh, where yeah. I originally heard a lot, about it. A lot of people. A lot that's of sort people. of their yeah. their gateway drug, if you will, where people get introduced through the game, or nowadays even through video games, or you know, yeah. South Park or other mass media things. Right. Other you know, other conduits lead people back to that, the actual source material, which is Lovecraft's writing. Yeah, because I never got into it. I always thought he was kind of a hack writer, because it was always the people who listened to him or, or read him were always very niche and very kind of strange in school. And so I was like, oh, he probably stinks. I was really into Edgar Allan Poe. I mean, this is right in my wheelhouse. Mm -hmm. but I never read it. And then I, I just got into Lovecraft maybe two months ago. <laughs> Can't put it down. I have the big, the big thick book of everything, yeah. and I haven't put it down. It's amazing. It's good stuff. And it leads itself to extremely fun live-action role-playing, I imagine. Oh, it certainly can, yeah. Part of it is because of the... Lovecraft, you know, the peak of his career was the 1920s and 30s, which was an era of American and world history that is inherently romantic and fantastic anyway. Mm. There were a lot of larger-than-life personalities on the world stage in the 1920s and 30s. It was between the world wars, there was still innocence and romance in the world. There were still places on earth that nobody had ever been and, and, and places where you could imagine what might be there and there was no one who could contradict you. So the, wor the real world uh, itself was a fascinating place then. And then on top of that, Lovecraft's imagination and the sort of cosmic vision that he brought and all the great monsters and cults and all that kind of stuff. You put it all together and it's a great milieu for storytelling of all kinds and live action role playing is a blast. Yeah. Well, because it's kind of the last era of exploration before we went into space. You know, 20s and 30s, we were kind of exploring the world, and then mm -hmm. we finished exploring the world in the 40s and 50s, and then got to go someplace else, right? Well, that's when that's 
one way of looking at it, yeah. There's, <laughs> there's still this deep ocean down yeah, there. There's, but there's, but no. there's a few to explore. <laughs> nooks and crannies. There were certainly there. no satellites in orbit that could take photos of every square inch of the Earth's surface. So there were plenty of places on Earth that, that you just, nobody knew what was there. Yeah. Nobody had ever been there, and there was no way to get there except the hard way. Yeah. yeah. No, it's very true. Now, now, what kind of drew you guys to Lovecraft? Well, the, the path, personally, uh, for me getting into it is, Back in high school, my weirdest friend came up to me. Uh, this is uh, Daryl Touchton, who still does a lot of illustration work for us. And you just know, call I, him out, man. Just yeah, him no blast. problem. I'm going to put him in the spotlight. It's <laughs> his fault. He knows. Uh, but he was like, "Hey, I read this really weird book, and it's really weird. And you should read it." And he gave it to me. And it was a collection of horror stories, but it had uh, Lovecraft's The Rats in the Walls in mm. it, which is a, a particularly weird story. And I read it, and I was like, "Wow, this is really great." And then you know, went to the bookstore to see if there were any other books. And back then there was the uh, Del Rey series uh, of Lovecraft paperbacks with the Michael Whelan mm. covers, which in and of themselves were yeah. really creepy and weird. And I, you know, read the stories and, and both Daryl and I really got into them. And <clears throat> so it went from, for me, it, the path went from reading the strange story to reading all the strange stories. Um, and then I was given as a gift uh, the very first edition of the Call of Cthulhu role-playing game back in like 1981 and hadn't done much with it for a year or two and I was like oh that's what that game was about started to play it was like really fun and that was about the time that I met Andrew this was back when we were all living in Colorado and uh, said hey I've got this this game you want to come over to my house and and play and uh, set the hook and oh, yeah, I was, uh, he yeah. and several other friends then became uh, became kitchen table regulars for a couple of years till then we decided hey let's go out and do the same thing in graveyards and mansions and swamps and <laughs> deserts and is that true? Did you so those the settings? You, did you guys go into real? Yeah, the way one of the thing one of the big differences between the way we played our live action role playing is that we would find real world locations to play in. So instead of playing in you know our bedrooms and pretending we were at Miskatonic, we would go to the University of Denver, the actual library at the University of Denver, and play in the actual stacks. And we would plant clues there and, and have locations. So when you went, went to meet Professor Jackson at Miskatonic University, you would go to the room and there's a, there's a professor there and you have to ask him questions. You might not have any idea who the guy is in, in the real world, but you're pursuing your investigation there. And we gradually sort of grew out of even using universities and things oh, yeah. and started using you know, a ghost town in the Colorado Rockies. We did a game set in Egypt where we said we actually played the game in the Great Sand Dunes in Southern Colorado, which is just vast miles and miles of It's nothing but sand, sand dunes as far as the eye can see. And it might as, if you're pretending it's Egypt, it might as well be Egypt. Right. Because you have to schlep this backpack full of heavy gear over endless sand dunes trying to find the guy who ran away in pursuit of the cultist and do all this stuff. And it's it's at some point it crosses the line from being imaginary to being so exhaustingly real that you you break down and weep for <laughs> sheer fear and frustration and every other kind of emotion you can imagine. Yeah, our our games brought a, a level of uh, physical involvement to them that a lot most other LARP players I've ever heard of have never really done the th things that, that as physically demanding as we have done and the physical demands tend to feed the emotional demands as Andrew's talking about. So it's like, you know, when you're out and it's the middle of the night in the desert and you don't know what's out there and you really are literally in a desert and you really don't know what's out there. The whole, people, the, the term meta has become very fashionable <laughs> lately, yeah. but the meta reality that people would, playing in our games would go through was really extraordinary. And people would, I've many times seen people do things physically that they can't do in real life. 
but in the adrenaline-filled thing of being chased by a monster or you know, running through the sand dunes or whatever, um, people really push their own boundaries. So in the years that we were doing the live-action gaming, you know, we grew to these exotic locations and played in the British Museum and were playing in ships on the ocean. And Andrew ended up renting a helicopter for one that flew us out into the middle of the desert. And there's a real helicopter really flying us out in the middle of the Mojave Desert where it dropped us down on a real dry lake bed with a, a cult symbol a couple hundred yards across that could only be seen from the air there. You know, this is what we were doing. And so when we talk about making the migration going, my God, this is as much work as making a movie. Maybe we should make movies. Should so make, so instead of six people being involved in the game, suddenly we are, the, the entertainment that we're creating, we can share with a much wider audience. And that ended up sort of being our trajectory. We haven't actually done much gaming in, in a fair while now. Yeah, not personally, it's sad. Um, but uh, moved into creating audio and, and motion picture entertainment that where we can tell stories, but... The, know, the games, you know, especially the super elaborate ones that were as much work as making a movie, you know, they were staged for 10 people, so only 10 right, players right, right. ever experienced those things. And it's like, we ought to do something that we can share with a wider group of people yeah. than just the, just the 10 people who can fit in this terrifying basement. It's, <laughs> it's a slightly better business model, too. It's a slightly you know, better yeah. business model, too, yeah. The older we get with, with uh, you know, mortgages and <laughs> things like that, the... Uh, ability to appeal to more people seems to make some sense. Yeah, no, there are a number of times in games in the past where I've been literally paralyzed with fear because I've encountered something that was so unexpected and so shocking that I truly could not move for moments until I got over it. And yeah, no, it's, it's brought us, uh, the live action role playing is a visceral experience. Well, I do want to say that just for the people listening home, if this sounds amazing to you, please, self-promotion, listen to my previous podcast with Aaron Vanek about live-action role-playing to get a background on what exactly is going on if they haven't made it clear enough, and I think that they have. So now, when you say that, you, that people have done things that they haven't, that they can't physically do, what have you seen done? I mean, we talking shooting fireballs from your fingertips or leaping <laughs> over tall buildings? Uh, well, no, 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 no. It's because, you know, that... that there's nothing fake about it. You know, I have, Andrew's not a small man. And in one particular game, oh, yeah. I remember just picking him up and running with him. <laughs> just, you know, like somebody might in a war because it's yeah. an adrenaline filled situation. We're on a mountain at night in the Colorado Rockies and, you know, our characters were friends. And my friend, I think you'd lost your shoe or something. Or I, for I some had, reason, you, you couldn't I was, run. We were being chased by a, a, about an 18 foot tall monster. In real life, it was a great big puppet that was, that was operated by five or six people. But in the world of the game, it was this, this you know, ghost like creature that was bearing down on us. And we were running for our lives. My character was a sort of diminished capacity insane. And as we were running, literally, my shoe flew off. And it's one of those deals where, like, if it happened in a movie, you'd say, oh, this is the stupidest plot contrivance. But <laughs> right, right. It, it actually happened. My shoe flew off. And it wouldn't have been a big deal, except that we were surrounded by cactus. So uh, rather than continue to run with no shoe, I said, I got to find my shoe. And so we spent a moment or two trying to find the shoe. But this thing kept coming, because the thing doesn't care about the cactus. <laughs> and at some point, Sean just said, screw it. He grabbed me, threw me over his shoulder, and like a fireman carry, ran with me <laughs> over his shoulder. I don't know how far we got. Eventually, we fell down, and I landed on the cactuses. But it was one of those deals where it's like, you know, only in that, only with that huge monster coming after you could could Sean, you know, just throw me over his shoulder like a rag doll and run. 
That's I, rem I remember another game too. We we had uh, some players were ambushed by some vampire-like things oh, yeah. by a by a river and were absolutely terrified and weren't expecting anything and and suddenly were running for their lives and there was a river and this one guy just leaped across the river and and made it across and that was all well and good but he went back the next day just to see where this whole thing had happened in daylight and was like he was like I couldn't leap halfway across that river at a full run to do it you know ad adrenaline is a really powerful biochemical <laughs> thing that we carry with us and and this game tickles that yeah. part of the psyche in a way that that pushes the body to do things that are, are just simply beyond our normal capacity to call upon them and go, oh, I want to jump that river. Eh, that's not enough. You need people trying to kill you. Then you can jump the river. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So what did these monsters look like that you guys created? Because in the stories, I mean, these are indescribable, humongous beings. I mean, what were you guys using? Uh, it depended on the monster and, yeah. you know, the resources of... We sort of took turns running these games. The person who runs a game like this is usually called the keeper. So we would take turns being the keeper of the game. And, you know, it would sort of depend. Some of them were very detailed puppets. Some of them were, you know, not much better than cardboard cutouts, but when, when everybody's sharing the same imaginary world, you see things that aren't there. And a cardboard cutout can look very, very realistic if you're in the right frame of mind. One of the reasons that these games typically don't photograph very well is that the cameras, when the camera looks at it, it sees the cardboard cutout and mm. it looks lame. But the people who are there in the moment, they see, they see it through the eyes of their imagination. So mm -hmm. it's very compelling. That's a great distinction because one of the other questions that I had was, I, wonder, I was kind of wondering why out loud to you guys, why is it that H.P. Lovecraft, who has as many horror stories as anyone else, why are his stories not major motion pictures? Mm -hmm. You know, there aren't a lot. I mean, you know, there's the, Reanimator is probably the most successful one. It's not that great of a movie. Um, but, but they're not really, you know, they aren't really turned into cinema that often. And that must be the reason. Yeah, I, I think I would say the, the first pitfall of, of that is, you know, Lovecraft was not a dramatic writer at all. He wrote mm -hmm. terrific stories, but they're not drama in an Aristotelian mm -hmm. theatrical or filmmaking sense. They're not nice three-act structures that are mm -hmm. the sort of, the, the experience that characters go through in Lovecraft stories are not the types of experiences that we're enculturated to expect in motion pictures. So they have to be changed. The, the Lovecraft stories have to be changed and adapted for the screen, and some of those adaptations have worked pretty well, and a bunch of them haven't. And I think in a lot of situations, the producer goes, well, let's, let's just write some new things, let's do something else, and rather than trying to, to you know, take Lovecraft's kind of oblique and obscure worldview and, and tame it and, and put it on the, on the screen. Lovecraft wasn't particularly interested in the human characters in his own stories. Their relationships, their personal journeys were seldom the point uh, from his point of view. So, but those things typically have to be the point for a dramatic mm. presentation. So you either have to provide them and do some violence to Lovecraft's original, or you have to ignore them and make a movie that's kind of boring. So that's sort of the struggle that most people who try to adapt Lovecraft into dramatic media, whether it's film or stage or radio play or whatever it might be, that's sort of the, the constant uh, balancing act that you have to work with.
I guess that makes a lot of sense. I mean, there are some supernatural type shows like Lost, for example, comes to mind where you have things that are the character. Like the island in the first season is definitely a character. The setting is alive and creepy. But I think it's difficult to do, um, you know, on a movie screen, I think, for two hours. I don't know if people, because it takes a little bit to buy into that, you know, two or three episodes yeah, of a it's TV episodic show. television where yeah. you have a whole season long to develop a concept. Yeah. And even Lost, I mean, if it was only about the island, nobody would watch it. It's, right. know, it's also about all those plane crash survivors and romantic triangles and all sorts of other stuff and yeah. flashbacks to their lives and what got them there and what makes them tick and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. The island, you could say, is a character, but if it was the only character, nobody would watch Lost. No, that's very true. Yeah. You have to have someone interacting with it. At the end of the day, I would say for Andrew and I, you know, we're, we're believers that there is a sweet spot yeah. that can be done where a dramatic narrative of a Lovecraft, uh, where a Lovecraft story can be framed in a dramatic narrative where we can become invested in the protagonist, because Lovecraft stories do have characters, even if they're not necessarily particularly fleshed out in the stories, and they do often go on journeys, um, and, and that's, you know, a hallmark of, of motion picture storytelling. So, you know, we've now adapted between doing um, two motion pictures and uh, ten, 10 radio plays that we've done now as, you know, that are sort of feature-length stories. Plus a few musical projects that are sort of miniature adaptations of some of these these tales. Yeah, that there's a place where you can keep enough of, of Lovecraft and his writing and his spirit and his worldview in the project so it feels Lovecraftian, where you mentioned Reanimator, which a lot of people, I think, doesn't feel particularly Lovecraftian. I think, I think Lovecraft would be very puzzled to have seen it. It's an entertaining <laughs> film, but it's yeah. not... It's not doesn't cleave particularly closely to the the style or the subject matter on which he wrote, um, but I think there is a space where where the stories can be brought to a dramatic life for a contemporary audience. We're big Lovecraft fans. That's one key thing that you know we love Lovecraft. We love the original stuff, and we recognize you know it's not the not necessarily the greatest. He has his shortcomings as a writer, but. You know, we love his stuff, so we are very interested in preserving all that's best about Lovecraft and also bringing him to an audience that isn't necessarily, uh, you know, ready to take him just by himself. He can be a bit of an acquired taste. He's got, he's got a heavy-duty vocabulary, mm -hmm. and he's, you know, his, his concerns are not necessarily to entertain. His concerns are to create a mood and, and make a point and describe a world. Yeah, that's the thing that kind of sets him apart is that the it is a very mood-centered thing. Mm -hmm. so, you know, because anything that, all the things that have fol followed after the stories, like for example, I love the board games that are based on his world. Mm -hmm. They're all based on having an experience with it. The individual people, like you said before, don't matter. And that's been a theme throughout his work that is kind of sets him apart, or at least one of the first ones to do something like that. Yeah. So let's talk, I want to get into your work in a second. Let's talk quickly about your background. Both of you have an acting and theater background, correct? Yes. We do. Is that true? So where did you guys study? What have, what have you guys done in the theater world outside of pre-Lovecraftian days? Uh, Sean and I are both from Denver. Um, I, uh, I did, you know, uh, high school and college plays in Denver. Uh, got an, M an MA at the University of Denver, then went to the University of Illinois for an MFA um, in acting. I was a professional actor in Chicago for a few years before I moved to Los Angeles. I did shows at Steppenwolf and various other places in Chicago and then uh, came out here and uh, have worked a little bit on Los Angeles stages. 
And uh, like Andrew, you know, we, we met actually doing a play together uh, when we were in high school in Colorado uh, a bajillion years ago. Bajillion uh, years ago. But I did theater in high school, and then I did my undergraduate degree uh, in, in BFA in theater from the University of Colorado. And then I moved to California to get my MFA in acting at CalArts. Um, and a couple years after I finished graduate school, my wife and I decided to found our own theater company. So we actually have a theater company here in Burbank uh, called Theater Banshee and have been producing live theater here for 20 years. So, um, you know, from producing and directing and every now and then acting, but mostly from uh, my capacity has been in directing and producing theater. So, but it's been something that I've uh, been doing my entire life. So. Now, Theater Banshee, that's, does it do Lovecraftian type stuff, or is it just no, no, whatever no, it, you guys do? It, no. It's actually, uh, predominantly, we do a lot of Irish theater, uh, but we do Shakespeare or Steinbeck, or, you know, we've done lots of, uh, lots of different playwrights, so. Uh, and, but, and no Lovecraft. It's really, yeah. it's, not, it's not about that. And the, the stage is perhaps the final frontier for Lovecraft, <laughs> uh, because, you know, as Andrew was sort of talking about with the cardboard cutouts and and all that it is the one of the least forgiving environments and a lot of people have put Lovecraft on stage but <clears throat> it is I think one of the most difficult places to try and realize the dramatic value in his work hmm. well, what's up now in, on Theater Banshee is anything going on uh, n now now uh, not very much we're actually in pre-production this spring we're going to be doing uh, a play called Mine Eyes Hath Seen which is an exploration of the US Civil War through actual first-person writings of people who were in it uh, so it involves music and letters and diaries and all that. It's uh, for a cast of eight. This spring, this April, is going to be the 150th anniversary of the surrender of the Confederacy at Appomattox. So in celebration and recognition of that, we're going to be doing uh, this original piece, My Nice at Scene. So. Oh, that's great. That yeah. sounds awesome. Yeah. It's and totally different from what you guys normally do. Oh, yeah. It's, yeah, it's, it's, it's a, a different... It's a powerful evening. It's a, it's, it's a great piece. Uh, now, you guys did a, a musical called The Shagoth on the Roof. <laughs> What's that? <laughs> what is that? It sounds amazing. Uh, years years ago, we did a we did a, a what do you call those things? Mockumentary. A mockumentary. A mockumentary. Oh. Short, well, like ten minutes long. It was our first motion picture. It was project. the first, or well, I guess uh, not. Technically, right. our second. All right. Motion picture, um, but the first one we made after college, um, and it was it was the idea behind it was you know what if there were some insane theater company who had attempted to produce a musical theater piece based on the works of H.P. Lovecraft. What would it be like? It was a shuggeth on the roof. A shuggeth is a creature from one of, uh, he, they appear in a number of his stories, but most prominently in the, the story at the Mountains of Madness. And it was sort of a melding of Fiddler on the Roof and the collected works of H.P. Lovecraft. So the idea behind the mockumentary was Sean and I had found some old archival footage of a rehearsal of this show and we're trying to find out what had ever happened to this production. In the course of doing this mockumentary, we wrote a couple excerpts of a couple of the songs, and they are in the mockumentary. And so many people approached us and said, where can I get those songs that we... They, they sort of missed the mock. They missed the, the mock part of mockumentary. So a lot of people just thought it was a real thing, and we'd get letters saying, hey, I want to do this at my college. Can you send me the script for it? And we just didn't have the heart to say, oh, you missed the point, it was all a joke. So instead we said, oh, well, the rights aren't currently available, but get back to us in a couple of months. And after this happened four or five times, we sat down and went, we gotta write we the should, whole show. We really should write yeah. the show. So we actually went from having a, a couple snippets of a couple songs to having a full libretto and a full 12 number Broadway musical uh, that we wrote. And, <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> it got stranger from there because yeah. you know the, these people would then go, oh, I want to, I want to, still want to do Shuggles on the Roof in my college. And we'd go, great. We'd send them a script, and then they would read it and see the production demands. I mean, Cthulhu kills the we, entire cast at yeah. the end of the show. We, the whole set gets we deliberately wrote it to be unproducible. The whole point of it was supposed to be that you, there's there should be no such thing as a Lovecraftian Broadway musical. <laughs> so it, the whole thing was a parody of both Broadway, the excess of. Lion King style Broadway shows and the impossibility of making Lovecraft into a crowd pleasing, toe tapping Broadway extravaganza. But it's like it still producer. works. <laughs> it still works. And it ended up uh, these, these people in uh, Stockholm, Sweden uh, decided they were going to do it. They weren't going to take no for an answer. And they put on a fully mounted production of A Shuggath on the Roof, at the end of which Cthulhu killed everyone in the cast. And it was, we were there for it. Uh, it they was, did it in Swedish. And it was delightful. It was, it was delightful. <laughs> it was actually it was so a great fun. So. Really? So it was producible and it could be done. It can be done. It Clearly, be done. the next show we do has to be harder because some yeah. of the shows. So. And now it's been done twice, both times in Sweden. In Sweden, yeah. yeah. It's yet to be produced in English. Why Sweden? That's, an, that's another great question. Because they're uh, insane. Because they're crazy. Because the winters are long. Um, <laughs> Near as we can tell, we you know we we are a commercial operation as well. We we make these CDs and movies and things, and we ship them all over the world. Um, and a lot of our business is outside the United States, and we do more business in Sweden in particular, but certainly in Scandinavia and Northern Europe than you know Canada and the UK combined. There's something about the source material of Lovecraft that really clicks with the Scandinavian psyche. And so as a result, Lovecraft is really popular in Sweden. It's quite popular in, in Finland and Denmark too, but Sweden, you know, for a country of some nine, you know, country about the size of LA County, um, it's, we send a lot of stuff to Sweden and, you know, there's just a lot of enthusiasm for Lovecraft and his works. I was actually, I was just there, what, three, two, 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 two or three weeks ago. ago, I was just at a Lovecraft festival in Stockholm. So it's a, it's a, a big thing there. It'd be fun if you guys could put on that production using only IKEA furniture, as, <laughs> like all the monsters and everything. That'd be kind of fun. Oh, we got to gotta talk to them about gotta, sponsorship. We got to talk to the IKEA people right away. Right, right. <laughs> They're gonna love this idea. <laughs> all right, pause. Call them right now. Uh, so, no, what is what's some of the other stuff that you guys do? So, you guys have done films and the whole the whole gamut, right? Let's talk about your films first. Yeah. What was the first one? We've done well after after Shuggath on the Roof was successful beyond anybody's expectations. That was the first time we went up to the H.P. Lovecraft Film Festival that they've been having every year in Portland, Oregon mm. for almost 20 years now. Um, we, uh, we decided that it would be fun <laughs> to make a movie version of one of Lovecraft's most iconic stories, which is The Call of Cthulhu, um, a story that has been repeatedly described as unfilmable. Um, we thought we could pull it off if we made it the way we think it might have been made in Lovecraft's own lifetime. So we decided to tackle it as a 1920s silent black and white movie. Um, partly because going back to what I was saying earlier about how the world that Lovecraft lived in is part of his appeal, at least to us. Uh, you know, w uh, setting a movie, not only setting it in the 20s, but making it as though it were the 20s was one way of giving the audience the sort of aesthetic distance from some of the more outlandish parts of the material to let you just accept them. If you were to try to take some of his monsters and look at them in you know, f full color and a modern setting, they might seem kind of dopey. But if you see them in black and white and you can't really hear them coming, suddenly they get a lot scarier. 
because mm. you can let yourself just be in this entirely imaginary world. So we decided to tackle Call of Cthulhu as a black and white silent film. Um, we didn't know what we were doing. We just started doing it. Um, it took us about 18 months to, to produce. <laughs> Uh, we shot it all. We shot it all here in, in Los Angeles, except we did go to actual Providence, Rhode Island, and shoot on location at the Fleur de Lis building, which is a, mm. a real place mentioned in the story. Um, and uh, that movie also played in Portland, and once again was well. It also it played all over the world. It played all over the world. It was far more successful than we than we ever expected. Yeah. Really, it was great. It was great. It was it was a real surprise when you know we really made the movie. For ourselves and the you know handful of people we were confident would like it, but beyond that, you yeah. know, it was a, a entire you know leap of faith, and and um, it did garner a lot of attention worldwide, and it put us in a position where we could look at doing another movie. So um, based on the experience of doing Call of Cthulhu, we decided to do The Whisper in Darkness, and having visited Lovecraft as a, a silent 1920s thing, we thought we would uh, take it a couple years forward in time to the era of the talkies. And 1931 was the year of Dracula and Frankenstein and some of the great universal pictures, uh, horror films. And so using that aesthetic, um, we decided to do a full feature length uh, motion picture with sound uh, and did the story of the whisper in darkness. And we shot for a week or so on location in New England. And then we came back here and shot on sound stages in Los Angeles to uh, make the motion picture. Was it pretty difficult to shoot on location? Uh, did you guys get a crew out there? Did you fly everyone out, or how'd that work? We, we had two of our crews drove a truck full of gear out there and then flew the rest of our cast and crew out there. Um, and it was, it was brutal, you know. I, this is low-budget filmmaking, so our schedules were incredibly ambitious. You know, we, we didn't have, you know, we just didn't have time for error or time to pad the schedule in any way, yeah. so, so we just simply, you know, had very long days out there. And, you know, one of the, the, the joys in what Andrew and I have been doing is that we've been able to largely work with our friends and uh, lots mm -hmm. of people we know. Certainly we hire in people as we need to, but we've also uh, been able to, to work with a lot of our friends who happen to be professional actors or cinematographers mm -hmm. or, you know, we know a lot of people in the industries. We really can't talk about either The Call of Cthulhu or The Whisper in Darkness without mentioning David Robertson, who Absolutely. was the cinematographer on mm -hmm. both films. And without Dave Robertson's contributions, neither of those movies would have worked because he is a genius at lighting and, you know, uh, he can, with one light bulb, David Robertson can create magical screen pictures. Uh, one he, light bulb? One, one, one light bulb. One, one light bulb. bulb. <laughs> one light bulb. There, he takes pride in being able to light a scene with one. <laughs> Every now and then we go crazy Every now and, and we say then. used to, but, yeah. but he can do it he with one. He can do it with one, and man, when he does it with one, it looks great. Yeah. No, Dave Robertson uh, is, is, is one of the biggest heroes of both of those films, and, and uh, I hope we get to work with him again. <laughs> so I assume because you know a lot of people in the industry, you were able to get a lot of the stuff for at cost or cheaper to make it producible then, yeah? Uh, certainly, some you know some some things we could, some things we couldn't, and you know had had to pay for. It was a very ambitious film to do on the kind of budget that we did. We also are lucky in that we, there's a lot of stuff we can do ourselves. So mm. for you know, both of those movies involved a number of miniature sets, for example, and they were built in this room. Um, so like some, some of them are very close. The, to us right The one now. sitting <laughs> on top of the refrigerator <laughs> yeah. is the miniature set from one of the miniature sets from The Whisper in Darkness. It's in the movie for all of four seconds, but. You know, we were able to build it here. Uh, th where we're sitting right now used to be a 
16 by 24 foot miniature Vermont mountainscape. Where, really? Yeah, where the finale of The Whisper in Darkness was filmed. So we, we are able to do some stuff because we just do it, we literally do it ourselves. And in addition to having uh, you know, people like uh, David Robertson involved in the film, there were other crew members too who, Absolutely. who joined the project because they're Lovecraft fans. Absolutely, they they wanted to be part of a Lovecraft movie, and so you know everybody got paid, but you know nobody got paid like they they would if they were working on uh, Pacific Rim or something, you right. know. So, uh, <laughs> but nonetheless, you know they were part of. Uh, wow, that was a str- that was that was very Lovecraft. Somebody's t- tuning their didgeridoo. didgeridoo. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, uh, but yeah, we were able to, you know to make the film with people like uh, Dave Snyder and and Fred Manchento. And yeah. Jason Voss and a lot of people who whose love of the material is what brought them to us. And They're all experienced cinema professionals. Dave Snyder's a fantastic makeup artist. Fred Manchento is a brilliant scenic miniature guy, but they also both happen to be big Lovecraft fans. And the thought of being able to work on a Lovecraft movie where they think it's gonna get done right, they will happily join the team at a reduced cost because they wanna see their the thing that they love, they want to see it done well, yeah. the way they would do it. And we want them, we want to do it the way they would do it because they're really good. The head and hands of Henry Akeley that you'll see on your way out are, were made by Dave Snyder. And Yeah, I saw them on the way. I want to have pictures yeah. of all this stuff. This stuff's amazing. Yeah. It looks incredible. Sean was telling me how you guys, you know, it's all professionally made props oh, from yeah. the cast from the people. and. Yep. That's so you guys do that here. I mean, is that something that you guys got into later yeah, we, on, or how did you? The, the space that you're in is a large sort of workshop space where we, you know, we work in all kinds of media. From you know, there's woodworking stuff for building sets, and there's uh, materials for casting items in resin or plaster. There's sewing section for being able to fabricate things out of fabric. There's a makeup section for where uh, you know Dave does a lot of the the casting and implementations of the makeup jobs there's a documents department where fake prop documents get made there's you know a shipping department where everything gets sent to Sweden there's a lot of different uh, you know for for one big dusty room there's a lot of different types yeah. of operations that have here That's and why I think we try to keep everything on wheels so we can <laughs> reconfigure <laughs> the room and I, I think you know one of the things we about Andrew had mentioned earlier about you know doing it ourselves is having a background as theater guys you know, theater rarely has the luxury of going, well, yeah. <laughs> well, call in the expert on pyrotechnics and we'll bring him in and we'll give him $10,000 and it'll be great. You know, you, you're constantly confronted with difficult artistic challenges and no resources to meet them. It happens all the time. And coming out of that aesthetic, it's really sort of infused what we do to yeah. go, eh, very we do it yourself approach. We mm. need a blah, blah, blah. We've never made a blah, blah, blah. We don't know how to make a blah, blah, blah. We don't know what it will look like. So we figure it out. And so far, that. But I think I'll make it out of foam and I start cutting <laughs> foam and eventually we get there. And you get the blah, blah, blah. Or we mm-hmm. realize that no, Lehman can't possibly make that out of foam. And then we get somebody better involved. <laughs> <laughs> so, what's the most difficult thing you guys have had to create? Or a person that you've had to recreate. Well, difficult thing we've ever had to create. The the, the Migo were a trick, the as as were, were the brain cylinders. Really, those, oh, those were both the brain problematic. Don't get so. me started. About well, that. The, yeah, and, and this is this is I, I guess it's a legitimate tale of the pitfalls of of, sure. of having enthusiasts be part of our project. Is in the Whisper and Darkness. There's some very interesting sort of sci-fi machinery, brains and jars, and you know, mm. they, and they're, they're a big part of the story, uh, how they work. And so we had a guy who was a machinist and similar to some of the other people, he was very enthused and, and really eager to be on board. 
Uh, unlike though a lot of the people actually worked on the picture, he, he wasn't here local, so he was off in, I don't remember what state he was in. Maryland. So, yeah, there we go. So, mm. but you know, we worked out plans with him and they're gonna do this and they're gonna do that and, and you know, it's complicated and he's like, no problem, he's gonna mach machine it all out of aluminum. And he sent mock-ups and technical drawings and every indication was that these were gonna be great. Like blueprints, the whole thing, yeah, Wiley Coyotes. Yeah, this was, and this was like a godsend because this is difficult, complicated work in metal that you can't just, you know, if, if he can't pull it off, you just can't turn to, your friend Bob and Bob will whip these up for you. This right. is complicated stuff, and so you know, of course, everything happens on a pretty on a ruthlessly strict timeline um, in making a movie. Yeah. And we finally got the box from him, uh, and it was it was a box filled with aluminum shaped heartbreak. Um, <laughs> it was it was it was just like scraps, and he was just like you know, sorry, didn't have time to do it. Uh, and what? So I, so I sent that you, was the message, really. <laughs> I sent you what I had, and and even the things he sent us, were you know, the, the the alien runes were in Hebrew. There was there was so much that was wrong about it um, that you know we just wanted to weep, and so had one of these situations where we had a very we were already very shooting by complicated. This, I mean, the, problem. this was days before the scene in question was supposed to be shot, and you know we couldn't change the schedule because we had a whole cast and crew on standby. We just didn't have the hero props of the film. <laughs> wow. Yeah, and there are scenes that are about the about props where, where characters are interacting with them, yeah. and talking with them and, and yeah. things. And so, you know, that's, I, I think, the most yeah. stunning example of being, you know, just clobbered with a, a last minute curveball and going, you know, okay, what do we do? Because, you know, we need, it has to be completely reimagined and then whatever gets reimagined has to be fabricated in like 36 hours and be camera ready. Um, otherwise, you know, yeah. we can't shoot this stuff, which will cost us money, which we don't have. So we really do want to shoot it. But how do we do that? Um, and that, I think, was probably the most stupendous and ruthless challenge that, that we've ever been thrown up against. So, uh, And that's, you know, it's a risk you run when, you know, if, if we had been paying that guy, well, maybe we could have fired him or yeah. sued him and gotten money back or something, you yeah. know, but but he was a, a you know, he was he a was volunteer, volunteer, which left us with really Nothing. no recourse but to find our own way out of that nightmare. The flip side of that coin. Wait, what happened? Though. What happened? How'd you guys feel? How'd you guys feel? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sitting under my seat. What happened? Uh, you know, I spent the next 36 hours, not on the set, but at our workshop, uh, which was the one before this one. Um, and I fabricated brain cylinders out of literally cardboard tubes and plexiglass tubes and duct tape. They were literally made out of cardboard, duct tape, and plexiglass. And, and, and you <laughs> know, if look? you didn't know that about the movie, we had to, people would... We had to change the way we were planning to. Mm -mm, they right. couldn't do what they were supposed to do. They weren't right, as right, cool right. as they were meant to be. Right. But we figured out a way to light them from the inside by cutting a hole in the table and shining a light ah, yeah, from yeah. underneath and pumping fog up through the hole so they looked like they were full of liquid when really they were not. So we wow. were able to come up with an old school theater you know, once again, years of being in theater came to save the day. It's like, okay, you got no time and no money, and you got to make this sci-fi thing. What are you going to do? You, you just do what you got to do. <laughs> that's incredible. Yeah. So you just kind of came through. We just... It's a good foundation. But that's a, I mean, that's, what, that's a good foundation in theater. Helped you guys on the... Yeah, no, it's... it's a, but then uh, there's also the other side of the coin sometimes, like the, the biplane story. Oh, the biplane where? story is, is, is the, yeah, it's a nice inverse of, of the yeah. previous one where we needed a, a biplane for the movie and we were planning to get, uh, shoot most of the biplane stuff with miniatures, get nice models 
and all that. And then we were going to build a little canoe-like cockpit, you know, for the scenes where the actors are in it. And so uh, Andrew was shopping on eBay for miniature biplanes and found a whole-sized biplane. Well, it was, ha- it was a half scale, a three-quarter no, it was scale? Three, it was three-quarter scale. Three-quarter scale. Curtis Jenny. Yeah. Biplane, but it's a, it's a plane. It's got a Chevy Chevette engine in it. And it runs. It runs. You can fly in it, ostensibly. Theoretically. Uh, if you're very brave. If you're not an idiot. Uh, and <laughs> or it's are an idiot. for sale in Colorado for a price that was really not all that much more than the good model biplanes went for. Yeah. So we bought it. And I flew to Colorado and... In the plane? No. No, no. I flew in a regular plane uh, and, and rented a very big truck in Pueblo, Colorado and drove out to this guy's house and we took the wings off the plane and put it in the back of the truck and I drove the truck back to Los Angeles and we had, you know, a, a you know, plane with a 30-foot wingspan. We had a full-on real wow. biplane uh, and that's what we shot on in the movie. And it was a great surprise and, you know, through the miracle of eBay, we paid for it, you know... Yeah. Uh, of deeply reasonable, you know, <laughs> cost for a, a prop of that magnitude. So, could you then sell? Did you guys sell it afterwards? And we did. We we actually there's a prop liquidation house right across the street from where you are right now. Really? Uh, and they were awesome. like, "Oh, please take the biplane over." And we were, you know, it's a big thing to store even yeah. with the wings off. So we were only too happy to to finally you know turn it over to you know up another prop house that will I'm sure it'll probably show up in other motion pictures. Yeah. So, wow. So what's coming up in the film world for you guys? Are you guys mm-hmm. still doing that stuff? We're talking about a couple different ones. We haven't committed to any particular project yet. We're at the moment we're making our uh, Dark Adventure Radio Theater shows yes. and a couple of other musical projects that are currently in the works. We got a we got a very full slate of other kinds of projects <laughs> in the works right now. And uh, but that's it. The, the, we're not out of the movie business, so no. that's that's probably the mo- uh, most oblique. Know, <laughs> the, the first one we made was 10 minutes long. The second one we made was 47 minutes long. The third one we made was a full feature length thing. So everyone has been an order of magnitude bigger and more complicated than the one yeah. before. So uh, the next one we make will will probably exceed what we can do ourselves in this room. Hmm. So we're, we don't know yet what it'll be, but it'll probably involve other people besides ourselves. Right. Yeah. Hopefully other studios and other... Hopefully people who know what they're doing have a lot of money. Yeah. Well, that's a great transition. Let's talk about your Dark Adventure Radio Theater. Sure. Is that the right... Dark Adventure Radio Theater. I want to make sure that was the right order. So I first saw this. I was lucky enough to see a live version of this, of the Shadows Over Innsmouth. Shadow Over Innsmouth. Shadow Over Innsmouth. It was amazing. Full cast. I mean, there were probably, what, nine people on stage, sound effects, audience interaction... Not nine people being yeah, quizzical. Eight. I don't know. It was eight. <laughs> six actors. How dare you say nine? There were eight. A, no, six actors and two uh, technicians, two sound guys yeah. who also played some of the roles, but yeah, yeah, primarily did the music and sound effects. Yeah. It was it was a pretty decent production for what was essentially a radio play that was live. It was incredible. Yeah. Um. So how did that start? Radio drive. It, it, it was another kind of a lark. After we did, it, it came I think fairly close on the heels of the Call of Cthulhu. Yeah. And One of uh, our guiding principles has always been we thought it would be fun. Mm. And almost everything we've ever undertaken, we started because we thought it'd be fun. And Dark Adventure Radio Theater is no exception. We, Having done a black and white silent movie, we thought, what's another form of popular entertainment from Lovecraft's day? And radio dramas were a big or a major form of public entertainment in the 1920s and 30s. And it was a highly experimental thing for us because we, like with Call of Cthulhu, we really didn't know if there would be an audience for it. So 
you know, we put together a cast of about 10, 12 actors and brought on uh, one of our composers to do an original score for it and, you know, did all the sound effects and put it together in, in the style of uh, one of the old radio shows and, and put it out there to see if anyone would uh, be interested in it. And we were bowled over by the enthusiasm with which it was met. And I think, you know, there are a lot of people for whom Lovecraft as literature is just not their cup of tea. Mm. Uh, and as, as we were talking about earlier, that some people are brought to Lovecraft through, through gaming or brought to it through motion pictures or other forms of entertainment. I think there are a lot of people who like the ideas of Lovecraft, they like the monsters, they're just not crazy about sitting down and reading these, you know, some of the stories are relatively long and demanding and full of polysyllabic monstrosities <laughs> that you yeah. have to stumble over and things. Yeah. And the radio plays are a very, <clears throat> we digestible. They're very yeah. They're they're audience friendly, and uh, we haven't done any drastic reworkings of the stories. So it's still you know it's not like the changes between Lovecraft's Herbert West Reanimator and Stuart Gordon's Motion Picture Reanimator. Here ours are you know our radio play of At the Mountains of Madness is very much like the story At the right. Mountains of Madness. Another another strength that a radio style adaptation can bring to the experience for an audience is that it, like Lovecraft's writing it leaves something to your imagination so an, an audio drama um, you know you have to in, you have to create all those pictures in your own imagination and they can be much more involving for an audience because nothing is scarier than the thing that you imagine yourself hmm. nothing that I show you nothing that I describe you know, in great detail is going to be nearly as scary as whatever you're thinking about. Hmm. So, uh, like a silent movie where, you know, you, you get to see the picture but not hear the sound, when you take away one of those senses, it brings the, the audience has to supply that missing element. So, a silent movie or a, or a radio show um, can be so involving for an audience because they have to be more, you can't just sit back and ignore it. You've got to participate in the creation of the experience for yourself. It's like sensory deprivation in a way. You take one thing away, your, your mind takes over. and Compensates for, yeah. and, and whatever you bring to it is going to be more, it's going to be a more powerful experience because you participated in it. Yeah. yeah. Well, I got to say, just to really quickly, I love the fact that you guys use 20 and th 20s and 30s themes for everything. That's so much fun. These like silent movies oh, yeah. and radio plays, like they're great. And what's kind of cool is now we're in kind of like a resurgence of audio in general. Like mm -hmm. podcasts are making more money than ever. On-demand radio is very popular. And these are the types of things that are great to listen to anytime, you know, in the car, in the, you know, work. I mean, it's great. I mean, this is like a perfect time for you guys to be. It's to kind be of, that. you know, most of the real radio dramas of the 20s and 30s were, you know, 15 minutes or 30 mm. minutes at the longest. All of our shows are well over an hour. They're right. all feature length experiences. It's kind of like a movie that you hear instead of watch. Yeah. yeah. Well, and the other advantage of doing radio plays, they're cheaper to produce than movies. They certainly are, and, and they're also, you can produce them uh, considerably quicker. Um, oh, yeah. you know, there are so many people involved in a motion picture and post-production. There's just a lot that needs to happen, and when you take the picture out of the equation and are just dealing with the audio, then it's really you know an edit of the audio, the sound design, the incorporation of music, you know, final edit, polish, mix, and master, and and it's uh, now we we just released this uh, here about a week ago, our tenth title uh, in the Dark Adventure series, and now that we've done a bunch of them, you know, it becomes increasingly efficient for us working on them, um, you know, and it's. Uh, Still a fun challenge because oh, Andrew yeah. and I are still, you know, personally involved in every step from writing the scripts to, you know, the packaging and the design. And we also, as part of the the to enrich the Dark Adventure experience, 
all the CDs that our customers buy include props from the shows. So for oh, example, wow. the Mountains of Madness, you know, in, when you open it up, there's the CD, but there's also a couple of photographs from the expedition, a newspaper clipping, and a page from a sketchbook. And you know, over the years, we've done things like uh, the the shadow, our version of Shadow of Innsmouth includes a map of Innsmouth drawn on a piece of butcher paper from the the first from the national store, store oh, which, great. Is, which is printed with scratch and sniff fish scented ink. <laughs> so we, true, really? Yeah. So we include little tidbits like that in all the shows, which, while we're taking away your ability to visualize what you're hearing. We're, we're actually pumping up the, the tactile side of it by, by, by giving the customers yeah, little that they can physical tidbits that are very, very, very realistic yeah. uh, to what the elements were, are that they'd experience in the stories. That's and great. That, that also comes from our gaming right, past yeah. where you know, props are, from a live theater and, and gaming background, props are a big part of storytelling, or can be. Yeah, And you know, absolutely. when you put an actual newspaper clipping in the hands of somebody who's listening to the story, it's like, oh my God, this is, this is real. It's, it, it, it just lets you bring yourself that much deeper into the story experience and makes it that much more fun yeah. and powerful. Well, what is the 10th title? Perfect yeah. opportunity to plug, Sean. <laughs> there we go. The 10th title of Dark Adventure Radio Theater <laughs> is uh, Imprisoned with the Pharaohs. Uh, and one of the interesting things with Imprisoned with the Pharaohs is, uh, so far all the stories we've done have been solely written by Lovecraft. Yeah. Imprisoned with the Pharaohs was actually based on a concept by Harry Houdini. Oh. Uh, and Lovecraft was asked to collaborate and take this sort of story outline by Houdini and flesh it out into an adventure. So uh, it, it is an actual merging of the worlds of, you know, the great, world's greatest magician and, you know, one of the foremost authors of weird fiction uh, come together in this story that's set in the you know, fictitious world of pre-World War One Egypt. That's incredible. Well, here's what's wonderful is that audience, I'm telling you this now for the first time, we actually have a sample, a complete story from one of your from one of your radio plays, Herbert West Reanimator. Now, correct. it's a complete story, but it is not the full story. That's correct. And you guys can get the full story. We'll give you guys promotional time in a minute, but on their website, which is uh, CthulhuLives.org, right? That's it. You can you can order this and several other plays. And if you don't know anything about Herbert, let's talk really quickly about Herbert West Reanimator, just so people can get kind of excited about it. Because I think this is kind of a fun story. It kind of, uh, at least in my opinion, uh, kind of, when you think of H.P. Lovecraft, this isn't one of the stories that pops into mind. But it does stand alone and kind of fits into the mythos um, of the world because it does take place at Miskatonic University in Arkham. And it's kind of a zombie story in a way, right? Uh, yeah, it's a... It's a mad scientist, Frankenstein, yeah. Prometheus kind of tale of, you know, science gone horribly, horribly wrong and, and hubris being the downfall of the main character and zombies, yeah. <laughs> There's no shortage of Walking Dead. There's no right? shortage of reanimated corpses. Reanimated yeah. is part of the, uh, part of the word. Yeah. And because the thing that's kind of cool about it is in a world now where, you know, when it comes to zombies, sometimes it's science-based. Zombies are kind of cool. They're one of my favorite creatures because there's many different ways of the origin, the genesis of a zombie. And this one kind of explores the chemical, a very analytical chemical processes mm -hmm. where, hey, well, we, we're, I think, it, I, and I'm, I don't know medical history that well, but I imagine at the time they realized that the human body is all just a series of chemical reactions. And so when it dies, all those chemical reactions stop. So basically the premise is, what if we could chemically start Rest that process restart again? Restart the machine, exactly right. Yeah. That's, that's West's theory and, you know, he tests it to the peril of himself and everyone he encounters. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, and it's, it's, a, it's a great story. And you guys act in all this stuff as well. Your voices are heard on all these things, right? We do. We've, we've performed in all the different shows. So Sometimes in big roles, sometimes in small. 
but yeah, we're in we're in all of them at least somehow or other. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and the other cool thing about this thematically is that H.P. Uh, Lovecraft was an atheist, and this is a very much an anti-God kind of approach to life in a way. You know. Herbert West. Yeah, Herbert West in the story. Well, I, I, I would agree that I mean Her Herbert's perspective is although Herbert's so deeply flawed and and his experiments are so personally disastrous for him that I've, if this if this was Lovecraft's if this was his example of be an atheist be like Herbert West I, I, yeah. I I'm not sure the message would be communicated well yeah. but I, and I think you know Lovecraft is is to uh, there's more I think of a sense of humor in Herbert West than a lot of the other stories oh, have absolutely. he's definitely he's spoofing the actual pulps that he's writing for mm. he's riffing on Frankenstein oh, yeah. and playing with a lot of the motifs and yet you know also grounding it in some philosophy and science which are all you know hallmarks of, of his personal interest. Lovecraft you know he knew Herbert West was over the top when he was writing it. He yeah. intended it to be and Lovecraft you know he's he's generally regarded as a horror writer but in many ways he's as much a science fiction writer as he is a horror writer because Herbert West is mostly a science fiction story. You know it's mm. it's all about science gone wrong. There aren't yeah. a lot of spiritual or supernatural the monsters are all man-made yeah in herbert west reanimator there is no god in well, herbert west reanimator um all right guys well this is promo time what do you guys have coming up what where can people find your stuff well uh we can be found uh, at our website which is cthululives.org and lots of people uh won't be able to spell that uh just for me having said it <laughs> yeah. but i will say I, I found that telling people they can google lovecraft historical they will find us in a heartbeat. Uh, we come up. We we have a, a very well trafficked website, and uh, we are pretty easy to find by casting the Google Net. But CthulhuLives.org is where our site is, and we have we have lots of there's just lots of weird and interesting stuff on our site, as well as a store where we sell. You know, right now I think we have like 130 or 140 different products uh, in our product line, ranging from <clears throat> you know coffee mugs and decks of playing cards up to. DVDs of the movies that we've made and CDs of the audio plays that we've done and uh, we have a rock opera based on Dreams in the Witch House, we have Shuggeth mm -hmm. on the Roof, we have two collections of Lovecraftian solstice carols, we've got all kinds of great stuff. And um, I'm going to give this, I'm going to give it a try just for people at home. So it's www.cthulhulives.org. That's it. That's it. Boom. Uh, and. Yeah, and just so, like it sounds. Just like it sounds. <laughs> what about social media? Oh, and you guys have MP3 downloads of these, I assume, yeah? We do, yeah. You can get them either on CD or as digital downloads for the radio plays and several of the other uh, audio projects that we've done are available as downloads from our site, too. Great. Facebook, social we're, media, Twitter, all Facebook, that Facebook, yep. yep. Twitter, we're there. Yeah, we have... Uh, we have where, Sean? We're, we're creeping to... <laughs> I, I wish I could tell. I think, I think it's HP Lovecraft Historical Society on Facebook. We've got a group there that's got almost 40,000 members now. As well as we have, there's an official H.P. Lovecraft Historical Society page. Um, but if people who are really into it, the group is a strange and fascinating, lively conversation between a lot of like-minded people. So uh, if people are fans, they might uh, enjoy getting in that uh, hullabaloo. Yes. Well, I'll put links on the website. So right. anyone is listening, put Super. links. You can link right to it. And um, next, we're going to have the much-anticipated... Dark Adventure Radio Theater's presentation of Herbert West Reanimator. That's it. Mouthful. Say it correct. Um, all right, guys. I can't thank you enough. This has been amazing. Thank you so much for sitting down with me. Our pleasure. Thanks um, for coming over. Thank you. And thanks to everyone for listening. Have a good night. So long. Bye.